This evening, we're continuing our time in the book of Exodus, and we're right in the middle of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And beginning with the last commandment that we looked at, commandment number five, to honor our fathers and our mothers, we began the transition to moving into commandments that more directly relate to our relationship with our fellow man. Oftentimes it is said that the first part of the Ten Commandments relate to our relationship with God. So our our vertical relationship. And then the last commands relate to our relationship with our fellow man, our horizontal commands. And I think there's some great truth to that. And there's an element in which, though, that you could, you could say that all of these commands, even these last ones that seem to be more directly related to our relationships with our fellow man, this still impacts our relationship with God, doesn't it? All of this is having to do with our relationship with God. In fact, that's the whole point of the covenant, isn't it? That, that we might have a relationship with the one true God, that Israel might have a relationship with the one true God. And so what these commandments show is that even life in the community of God, life in Israel, social life, life between people, interactions, social interactions, friendships, business dealings, all of that is to be done under the watchful eye of God. And with, with the, the idea of worshiping God and loving God through all of these actions that we undertake with our fellow man. And so we are to love and honor God and also love our neighbor as ourself. And so this commandment, the sixth commandment, is fairly straightforward. But the, the more that we get into it, I think we'll see that there are some serious questions of application in terms of what exactly does this commandment mean? How does it apply to us in our day to day? And so the, the sixth commandment says in Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Many translations have there, you shall not kill. Let's bow in prayer and ask God's help tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have taught us what is right and what is wrong. Lord, may we not uh, try to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. Let us not follow the path of Adam and Eve. But Lord, may we submit ourselves to your definition of what is right and what is wrong. May we not fall into the trap of much of our culture of calling what is good evil and what is evil good. Lord, help us to understand why you've given us this command and how this command impacts much of our lives on a daily basis. So, Lord, teach us tonight by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I want us to consider tonight as we think about this sixth commandment is the giver of the command. The giver of the command. And I think the answer to that, first of all, is obvious on one sense that it's God, isn't it? God is the giver of this commandment. So this is an authoritative declaration from the creator of the universe. And God, as the creator of the universe, is the one who establishes what is right and what is wrong. 
all true morality, all truth flows from God. And so he is the giver of this commandment. And he teaches us by way of command, but also by way of precept, that this is the path that we are to walk. And so this commandment teaches us to abstain from murder, from not killing other human beings. God, as the giver of this commandment, is the giver of life, isn't he? God is the giver of life. He is the originator of life. If it were not for God, there would be no life at all. We read in Genesis chapter 2 that, that God, as a, as a potter, took the clay and he molded it and he shaped it and he formed a man. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, a living being. God is the one who gives the breath of life. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 to the, the men of Athens that it is on God's power that we all depend for life, for the very breath that we breathe right now, we are dependent on God, the giver of life. And so God is the giver of life. He is the Lord of life, meaning that, that the giving of life and the taking away of life is really the prerogative of God, isn't it? The giving of life, the taking away of life is the prerogative of God. God is the one who created life, but isn't he also the one who first gave the punishment of death? So you might could say that God instituted both life and death. And God is the one who is sovereign over both. The giver of life and the one who takes away life. And so when a human being takes the life of another human being... Essentially, what they are saying is, I am Lord. And I am trying to usurp the, the authority and the sovereignty that rightfully belongs to God, the giver of life and the taker of life. And I am going to make the decision to end this person's life. So it is a usurpation of the authority of God, who is the giver of life. So God is the giver and sustainer of life. And to, to take that prerogative of the taking of life for ourselves is to rob God of his glory and to attempt to rob God of his sovereignty. Obviously, we cannot rob God of his sovereignty. God is sovereign. He is authoritative. He rules over all. And even in our sinful actions, God remains sovereign, doesn't he? But our disobedience, our rebellion in this matter is an attempt to usurp the authority of God in this matter of the taking of life. But God is the giver of life. Secondly, I want us to think about the reason for the commandment. What is the ethical or moral foundation for this commandment? And the ethical and moral foundation for this commandment is found in the book of Genesis really in a couple of key verses. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And he gave them dominion, right? Dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So human beings are made in the image of God. That was a part of God's original design. As a part of creation week, 
What was the, the last creative act of God? Was it not the creation of human beings? The last, the, the pinnacle, the climax, if you will, of God's creative activity was the exclamation point on everything that he had done. And the final climactic act of God in creation, the pinnacle, was the creation of beings made in his own image. And investing them with dignity and with a, with a subservient but real authority to rule over the world on behalf of God for his glory. So God made mankind in his own image. After the flood, do you remember the, how the events transpire? And we see right after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin in Genesis chapter 3, we see one of the very first really clear examples of sin in the Bible, don't we? And it's murder. Obviously, Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's command to not eat of the tree is clearly sinful. It was a breaking of God's command, his word. But when we think of sin and wickedness and rebellion in the traditional sense of of disobeying the, the moral commands of God, really the first instance that we see of that is when Cain rose up and killed Abel. And it was premeditated, wasn't it? He was angry. He was jealous. He wanted revenge. And he lured his brother out into the field and he killed him. It was murder. And God comes. Now, this is before the giving of the law, right? So this is before the giving of the law, before the tablets of the law. So there's no written law at this point. But still, built into our very fabric is this understanding that taking the life of another human being is wrong. That, that is a part of our moral fabric, our moral constitution made in the image of God that God has built into every single human being. And that is why you see commands against murder in every single society across the history of the world. It's because it's, it's innate. It's, it's clear. It's natural. It's in God's general revelation in the world and in our own consciences. So Cain, in killing Abel, was violating an unwritten law that he knew. And so God comes to him and he judges him, doesn't he? Now, he doesn't put Cain to death, but he does drive him out into the wilderness. And he makes him a wanderer. And he says, the crops, they won't produce for you. And Cain says, my punishment is too hard to bear. And so God puts a mark on Cain. He puts, in a sense, a mark of protection around him. But the punishment that he lays on Cain is very severe. Then we come to the human race continuing to get worse and worse. To the point where in Genesis 6, God says, I've seen what's going on in this world and the the evil imaginations of the heart. They're just evil all the time. And God says, I'm going to judge this world. And he saves and rescues Noah and his family, but he judges the rest of the world. And he starts over again with the new father of the human race, with Noah and with his family. And immediately after the flood, after they come off of the boat, here is what God says in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. 
Now, that verse is loaded with several important things. One is, God clearly defines murder as evil with his spoken word in Genesis 9-6. So the shedding of human blood is wrong. So God declares the morality here, the immorality of committing murder. He also declares the punishment for murder. And God says in Genesis 9-6 that those who shed human blood by other humans shall their blood be shed. In other words, for those who commit murder and take innocent human life, those who are guilty, they are to be put to death. And God has invested other humans the right to execute that justice on the guilty party. So there is the crime, the clear immorality of murder. God also establishes capital punishment as the rightful judgment for murder. And he also gives us the rationale of why this crime is so serious, doesn't he? Because he says, for in the image of God has he made mankind. Why is murder so serious? It's because you are killing an image bearer of God. That's not true of plants. It's not true of trees. It's not true of animals. It's not true of fish or birds, not of any other part of God's creation. The only being that is said to be made in the image of God and invested with this kind of dignity and protection is humanity. So that's the reason for the commandment. Human life is to be honored and protected because human beings are created in the image of God. The lives of human beings are valued above all other living things. All other living things. One commentator says this about this issue. He says, when the Torah first articulates the ban on murder... It provides a characteristically Israelite explanation equating homicide with sacrilege. For in deity's image, he made man. In other words, what he's saying is based on this to kill a man made in the image of God is also an act of blasphemy against God, the one who made that human being in his image. That's the reason for the command. So the giver of the command, the giver of the command is the one who has the authority over life and death. And we dare not usurp that. The reason for this command and its seriousness is because human beings are invested with a dignity because they're made in the image of God. So what is the meaning of this commandment? What is this commandment actually saying and teaching us? First of all, the restriction. It's, it's given as a simple negative, isn't it? No. Never not. Do not ever murder. Now, what is the action? What is the verb that is prohibited here, that you are not allowed to do? There's actually been a little bit of controversy about the meaning of this word, and this verse has been used by all kinds of people for all kinds of different agendas. So some translations, especially the older translations, have thou shalt not kill. Now, that's very generic, isn't it? So killing human life 
That's very generic. And so some have used that very generic definition of this verb to say you shouldn't have war, you shouldn't have capital punishment, you shouldn't defend, self-defend yourself and, and kill someone in self-defense. You should never, ever take the life of another human being, ever. And, and they use that very broad definition of this verb, kill, generally, as defense of that. Some of the newer translations recognize that that's not an appropriate way to understand this verb. It's not that generic. It's not that open-ended. But I think in doing that, they actually get a little bit too specific by saying, thou shalt not murder. Now, when we think of murder in our justice system, we think of something that is premeditated, something that is planned, something that is plotted, and then executed. But this verb in the Hebrew Bible is not that specific. It's used in several different scenarios. And so let me give you just a few of the examples in which this word is used. Clearly, it is used in cases where there is intentional premeditated murder. So it is used in those instances. If you wanted to use a word that communicated clearly murder, this is the word you would use in the Hebrew Bible. But it's not limited just to murder. For example, we see this verb used in situations where there is what we might call manslaughter without premeditation. It's used in instances like that. But we also see it used in instances where it's not even manslaughter in the sense of with malice or anger. But this word is also used in the cases of accidental death. Where there was, there was no, no desire at all for there to be death. I mean, it could even be something like you're swinging an axe and the axe head flies off and hits someone and they die. This verb is used for that. So m- murder, manslaughter, accidental death fits into this word. And there's even twice where this word is used to refer to the action of capital punishment of putting to death someone, but in those cases, it is putting someone to death for this same verb because they've committed this verb. Does that make sense? So in other words, they have killed in this sense and therefore the avenger of blood kills that person in revenge or injustice for that killing that they have done. Those are the ways that it's used in the Hebrew Bible. Now, Interestingly enough, this word is always used with human beings as the object. This word is never, ever used of the killing of an animal. Never. So the killing of an animal for food, the killing of an animal for a sacrifice, it never uses this word. Only of human beings. Typically, as well, human beings are the subject of this verb. So generally speaking, it is humans killing humans. That's the way that this word is used in the Hebrew Bible. So they're typically the subjects of the action, not God, not angels, but human beings. What's also interesting about this word is that because it can be used in different scenarios and different circumstances, there were different punishments that were given for the committing of this action. In the most serious of actions, 
where this word is used in the sense of premeditated murder, the punishment is death. Capital punishment. Which proves that this word does not outlaw capital punishment. Right? Because that's the punishment that is set up, designed specifically for when this command is violated. So the punishment for intentional premeditated killing is capital punishment, the death sentence. But the the punishments can vary and, and they go lesser depending on what action was involved. So for example, in the case of an accidental killing, even though it wasn't intentional, even though there was no malice, no anger, it was purely accidental, unintended. According to the Hebrew Bible, that person had to flee to a city of refuge. Otherwise, he might be susceptible or open to the avenger of blood from that family who would want to exact eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life on that person. But the Hebrew Bible made a provision for those who were guilty perhaps of manslaughter or unintentional accidental deaths. They could flee to a city of refuge until they at least could face trial and have witnesses. Now, if they went to a city of refuge to get protection, but it it came out that they actually committed murder and there were witnesses, then that city had to deliver them up to face their punishment. But if it was not premeditated, if it was not murder, if it was something accidental, less serious, but still death was involved, then according to the Hebrew scriptures, that person had to stay inside the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. So at a minimum, they had to relocate their lives to a city of refuge until the death of the high priest, and then they were free to leave and go back to their own property. And the Hebrew Bible says if they leave that city of refuge, if they step outside that city of refuge before the death of the high priest, they're open to the avenger of blood without repercussions on the avenger of blood. So various, various penalties, because there are various situations involved in the committing of this. And so how do we put this together? How do we then understand what the meaning of this word is? What's the core meaning of this word? Uh, Desmond Alexander says this in his commentary. He says, The sixth commandment is perhaps best understood as stating that no human may take a human life without divine approval. No human being may take a human life without divine approval. Or the prohibition may be defined more narrowly as the taking of a life outside of the parameters laid down by God. In other words, this word refers to an unlawful or an unauthorized killing. That's really the root meaning of this word. So not every breach of this prohibition carried the same penalty. Distinctions are drawn between murder and accidental manslaughter. Even those responsible for accidental deaths bore some responsibility and faced some punishment, like exile to a city of refuge. As a general statement, the sixth commandment, or the sixth word, underlines the sanctity of human life and expresses a strong prohibition against actions and attitudes that might cause the death 
of anyone. By prohibiting both murder and manslaughter, this commandment demonstrates the high priority that God places upon human life. No human being has the right to take another's life because each person is made in God's image. So what's the meaning of this this word? Essentially, it is the unlawful or the the God-unauthorized taking of a human life. Thou shalt not do it. What are some wrong applications of this commandment? Or perhaps, what are the exceptions to this commandment? Clearly, animal death, plant, vegetation death, has nothing to do with what this commandment is talking about. This is only talking about human life. We can see from the scriptures, from other laws in the Torah, that self-defense against an attacker is not included in this prohibition. So in the Hebrew Bible, in the scriptures, and we have to think, right, that God, as the speaker of truth, as the giver of truth, that he is consistent, right? That God can say one thing here and say another thing over here, and they're consistent. They, they, They harmonize. And so when God says in Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not take the human life of someone in in an unlawful way, that that is harmonious over here with God saying, it is okay for you to defend yourself and defend your family, even using lethal action to defend yourself. This commandment is not prohibiting capital punishment under the authority of a recognized government or authority. God himself established that, didn't he? Genesis 9, 6. Because human life is so precious, then murderers are to be put to death. Now, the liberal argument, those who would argue against this, they would say, well, aren't you devaluing human life by putting to death the murderer? They would say something like, two wrongs doesn't make a right. You know, this person already died. What good is it to put someone else to death? And I understand that argument. I just don't agree with it. And I think it fails to grapple with the seriousness of the crime of murder. Because what you end up doing when you don't have capital punishment for murder, when you don't have the death penalty for murder, you end up devaluing the crime. And you end up devaluing the innocent human life. And so when you put someone in jail for like 10 years and then probation for murder, essentially you're saying this innocent, precious life over here was only worth 10 years. But according to the Hebrew Bible, that's not just. That's not eye for eye. That's not tooth for tooth. That's not life for life. That's not just at all. So this commandment is not prohibiting capital punishment. This commandment is also not prohibiting just warfare. I mean, we see in Scripture that God commands His people to go to war, doesn't He? God commands holy war. He commands them to go to battle against the Canaanites and to to be His instruments of justice in certain cases. So this commandment does not prohibit just warfare. So there's no argument for pacifism in this commandment. You're, you, are, you are allowed to defend yourself. You're allowed to defend your country. You're allowed to defend your family. You're allowed to go to war for just causes and noble purposes. 
you're allowed to put criminals to death for capital crimes. The Hebrew Bible establishes that. One commentator, this is Nahum Sarna, he says this, this verb that we've been talking about, it applies to illegal killing. And unlike other verbs for the taking of life, it is never used in the administration of justice or for killing in war. So, so this word is never used in the context of warfare, ever. So warfare is not prohibited by this commandment. Also, it is never employed when the subject of the actions is God or an angel. This command, therefore, cannot be used to justify either pacifism or the abolition of the death penalty. Genesis 9-6 provides the rationale for the prohibition on murder. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in his image did God make man. This means that society must exact satisfaction for the crime of murder because life being derived from God is infinitely precious and is his alone to give and to take. By his unspeakable act, the murderer usurps the divine prerogative and infringes upon God's sovereignty. And because human beings are created in the divine image, he also affronts God's majesty. For this reason, it is not in the power of human beings to forgive a murderer or to commute the death penalty into ransom, as Numbers 35.31 makes clear. In other words, that's a very important statement. In other words, to not do capital punishment is a disobedience to God and is a violation of the sanctity of life and the image of God that each human being bears. Lastly, let's talk about some extensions of this commandment or applications, if you will. What are some ways that this command can be applied or extended in, in ways beyond just the, the very clear physical act of murder in which we understand? I would include within this commandment abortion. Abortion is the unjust, the unlawful taking of a human life. So based on other scriptures, Psalm, Psalms, for example, Psalm 139, other places in the law, Exodus 22, I take it that an unborn human life is a human life. And so therefore to take that human life before birth is a violation of this commandment. I would say that euthanasia falls under this prohibition. Euthanasia, while attempting to show mercy and compassion to another human being, is once again usurping a role that belongs to God and God alone. It is not up to us to determine the end of life for anyone. And also, euthanasia has a flawed view of suffering. Those who advocate for euthanasia have a flawed view of suffering. They view all suffering as evil and something to be eradicated and avoided at all costs. Whereas the Bible says that we can learn many things from our suffering, can't we? And that sometimes a part of suffering is God molding us into the image of Christ. Euthanasia is prohibited under this command. Suicide is prohibited under this command. Not only the taking of another human life, but the taking of your own life is prohibited. Again, that's usurping the role of God, isn't it? 
the God, the giver and the taker of life. One commentary I read suggested that negligence that results in death could fit into this commandment very clearly. So you have different kinds of negligence, don't you? You have passive negligence. Passive negligence is where you just don't do something, where you fail to take precautions, where you fail to put up a fence, where you, you fail to put up a warning sign, where you, you fail to watch a child. You know, those, those, are, those are passive ways of negligence. But there's also active ways of negligence in which you actively choose to do something that is putting yourself or others at risk. Now, all life involves risk. Stepping off a staircase, driving down the road involves risk. But when we subject ourselves or others to an inordinate amount of risk, an unjustified, precarious amount of risk, then we are bordering on violating this commandment. By the way, this doesn't include just physical actions, But within this, we can include all anger, malice, and ill will against another person. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21? You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus says, as he does with many other commandments, it's not just about the physical act of adultery, it's lust also. Well, here he says, it's not just the physical act of murder, it's also anger and hatred in your heart. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, he says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And then he lists the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so negatively, the command is prohibiting us from certain actions and attitudes, isn't it? But understood as a part of the law of love of neighbor, it is also commanding us positively to show love and concern for our neighbor. I'm going to conclude with John Calvin because he captured this idea very well, I think. Here's what John Calvin said. He said, It will, however, more clearly appear hereafter that under the word kill is included by synecdoche, that's a literary term, which means a part for the whole. So by synecdoche, a all violence, smiting, and aggression. So in other words, he's saying thou shalt not kill includes all violence, smiting, and aggression. Besides, another principle is also to be remembered that in negative precepts, as they're called, the opposite affirmation is also to be understood. Else it would not be by any means consistent that a person would satisfy God's law by merely abstaining from doing injury to others. Suppose, for example, that one of a cowardly disposition and not daring to assail even a child should not move a finger to injure his neighbors. Would he therefore have discharged the duties of humanity as regards the sixth commandment? He says no. 
Nay, natural common sense demands more than that we should abstain from wrongdoing. And not to say more on this point, it will plainly appear from the summary of the second table, that the second half of the Ten Commandments, that God not only forbids us to be murderers, but also prescribes that everyone should study faithfully to defend the life of his neighbor. And practically to declare that it is dear to him. For in that summary, no mere negative phrase is used, but the words expressly set forth that our neighbors are to be loved. In other words, he's saying this isn't just a negative prohibition. This also involves the other side of the coin, which is a positive affirmation that we are to love and look out for our neighbors. So the sixth commandment is a prohibition against the unlawful taking of a human life. But merely refraining from killing another human being is not our full obedience to this command. This command requires love for our fellow man that abstains not only from physical violence, but also anger and malice toward one another. May God help us to be his children of light and life in the world. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, I pray that you would use us as your people to be ambassadors for life, for the sanctity of human life in all areas in our culture in which we can apply this command. God, maybe we be advocates for justice, for fairness in the court system. May we be advocates for righteousness. May we fight against injustice and oppression such as we see in abortion. God, may we be examples to the world of valuing human life, valuing our own human lives that you've given to us as a precious treasure, valuing the lives of our family and caring for them and treasuring them, valuing and loving our neighbors in sacrificing and doing goodwill for them. Lord, may we do good work so that others may see them and glorify you in heaven. God, make us your ambassadors of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.